You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Claudia Dozier, a professor in the Department of Applied Behavioral Science at the University of Kansas. With a bachelor's degree from Florida State University, a master's degree from the University of Nevada, Reno, and a doctoral degree from the University of Florida, Dr. Dozier brings a wealth of knowledge to our discussion. Dr. Dozier's research areas include assessment, treatment, and prevention of behavior disorders, as well as schedules of reinforcement. In recognition of her dedication, Dr. Dozier received the Steeple Service to Kansans Award in 2020 for her outstanding contributions to the people of Kansas. Notably, she and her colleagues recently secured a $2.5 million federal grant to provide telehealth services to families with children with autism who engage in disruptive repetitive behavior. Today's episode will focus on the intriguing topic of synchronous schedules of reinforcement. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm super happy to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. And to be honest, this is a topic when you get into a lot of even the ongoing practice within the field. This is probably one of the schedules of reinforcement that are, I guess, underused, underutilized and misunderstood at times. But before we get there, I always love to get a better understanding of our guests and what drove them into this field. Uh, both behavior and autism specific, if there's anything that you mind sharing with us. Sure. I was an undergrad at Florida State University, and I think like a lot of undergraduate students kind of hopping around between majors. Um, I had uh, I was in the psychology department and taken a bunch of classes at normal psychology and things just weren't really clicking for me. And then I took an introduction to behavior analysis course and it was just like a light bulb moment. And I think a lot of people have that same story when they talk about behavior analysis and how they got started. And then from there, it was like a whirlwind. So I started working with kids in preschools, volunteering and supporting adults with disabilities. Then I was lucky enough to get into Dr. John Bailey's lab and I assisted his doctoral students in conducting research with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And then I got into graduate school at University of Nevada, Reno, and then that was a hub for early intensive behavioral intervention for children with autism. Uh, and I had amazing mentors, um, including faculty and the more senior graduate students that took me under their wing and taught me everything that they knew. Um, and I think probably I learned the most and my behavior was shaped the most by the families and children that I worked with during that time because I was very green and they taught me a ton. Um, and I think that's sort of where my passion for behavior analysis and addressing socially significant behavior change really came. Yeah, it, you know, I, I find that, like you said, is that a lot of people follow that same path, but it it really is the ability to kind of take what you're doing in all the research that you're putting out there to, to make things better, to fine tune things. But the amplitude of that, if you have that clinical practice to be able to show that, you know, this is something that is scalable. If you go into many organizations, it can help many families, it can go into schools, it can... It, it that is where I think the true power comes in. Absolutely. And, 
and that's the, the talk that I'd love to get into today, because as we're talking through some of the research that's coming out and that you've put out on synchronous schedules of reinforcement, is I don't know that a lot of clinicians are using this very frequently. And I don't know that people really even thought much about it until I, I probably say the beginning of COVID and maybe mask wearing or something yes. to that extent. And but why don't you walk us through because you, you are an expert in this field is walk us through the, you know, what are synchronous schedules of reinforcement and how do they differ from other reinforcement schedules that exist in ABA? Right, right. So typically how we set up how and when we deliver reinforcers is in more of a sort of discrete format. So if you do this, then you get this. And these are schedules that folks are familiar with in ABA therapy. Um, these are schedules that people might refer to as episodic schedules. So our ratio schedules, our interval schedules. So you do three math problems or you put in six puzzle pieces, then you get to watch a video on your iPad for a period of time, or you get a small edible. Or for each correct response, we deliver a token that you accumulate and can be exchanged at the end for some reinforcer. Synchronous schedules are different in that the re reinforcers provided on an ongoing basis as long as a behavior is happening. So these are more what is referred to as non-episodic or continuous schedules. So the onset and offset of the behavior is perfectly synchronized, hence the synchronous, synchronized with the onset and offset of the reinforcer. So behavior is happening, whatever the target behavior is, reinforcers on or being presented or um, available, the behavior stops, reinforcers paused until the behavior starts happening again, and then the reinforcer is on again. And so there's that synchronous aspect of the reinforcer and the behavior. Um, these schedules are most relevant for ongoing behaviors or duration-based behaviors, so being on task, engaging in appropriate social interactions, toy cleanup behavior after playtime, um, tolerating a difficult situation like hygiene tasks or activities of daily living, transitions, those kind of ongoing more duration-based behaviors. And the reinforcers that are delivered in synchronous schedules are ones that can be delivered on an ongo ongoing basis. So not just discrete delivery, but things like ongoing preferred interaction or ongoing um, sensory stimulation, ongoing video access or music access are typically reinforcers that are programmed with synchronous schedules. Maybe maybe we can take a look at this in, in the realm of, um, I guess, looking at a, a preschool classroom and maybe even uh, uh, let's let's kind of put the scenario out there of uh playing nicely interacting with a peer and and i would say is that more often than not if you if you're working kind of in the behavioral spheres that somebody's going to say well i'm going to set a timer and you need to work for this duration of time of playing successfully before you have access to reinforcement what right. what would you be doing differently in the setup of this to be able to say you know what let's change that dynamic Let's look at things a little bit differently and, and let's bring in the synchronous schedule. What would what would that look like in the same scenario? 
Yeah, so, um, and that's, if we're if you're looking at social interaction or playing nicely, then um, first you need to figure out what the reinforcer is for the individuals that you would be um, wanting to change that behavior in. And then you would deliver it, it would be on or present, as long as they were engaged in whatever behaviors you're wanting them to engage in. If those behaviors stopped occurring, um, then that reinforcer would be paused. It would not be delivered until those behaviors started occurring again. So there's lots of situations in a preschool classroom where that could actually be applicable. So in preschool classrooms, um, one of the most difficult times of the day, which happens tons of times during the day, are transitions. Kids are transitioning all day long in preschools, from inside to outside, from outside to inside, from play to toileting, um, uh, from one activity to another. A lot of times those transitions are from a high preferred activity to a low preferred activity, which makes them difficult <laughs> for the kids. And so that might be a perfect time to use a synchronous schedule where as long as they're tra transitioning appropriately, however you define it, then the reinforcer's on. They stop engaging in an appropriate transition, it's paused until they start engaging in an appropriate transition again. We've also used it in preschool classrooms to increase appropriate mealtime behavior. So sitting in your seat, keeping your hands to yourselves, um, talking in an inside voice, as long as um, target children or all of the kids or the majority of the kids are doing that, then a video or music is playing that they prefer or that they chose at the beginning of the mealtime. But if um, folks stop um, uh, engaging in those appropriate behaviors, then the music's paused until everyone's doing it again. So um, there's a lots of applications um, no, for it no. in, in preschools. And I mean, it sounds like a, a, when you were describing that whole thing, I'm thinking a variety of families, whether it's neurotypical children or uh, children that, that think differently or engage differently and have different perspectives, is that you have this the same issues that might be occurring across environments, is that my parents probably wanted me to sit a little bit more comfortably around the table all the time when we're having a meal. and. Right. If I think back to when that was, it might have been a black and white TV, and those might have been the norm at that point. What <laughs> I remember is that there were times when we'd have the TV on at dinner, and sure. granted, if there's negative components to that, I'm sure, is that we probably didn't talk to each other as much as what we should have, but right. they succeeded in getting us all at the table at the same time, because that was the time where we'd all watch a program. I mean, uh, so there are those things where we probably were using some of these schedules, not purposefully, but right. still within the realm. So what are some of the characteristics of some of the behaviors that you'd be looking at? I mean, the things that you're describing seem like, you know, they're behaviors that we're trying to be able to enhance or increase or make more commonplace. But what are some of the characteristics that we'd say, you know, this might be the time to use a synchronous schedule for enforcement. Sure. So again, it, it needs to be some behavior that's duration based. So an ongoing behavior rather than a discrete response, because the schedule requires that um, for uh, behavior change, right? And how it's programmed. So that's one thing. Um, uh, Behaviors that are more like on task or engagement in an activity um, are 
characteristics of a behavior you would be looking for. Um, we've used it a lot for tolerating difficult situations. So in our adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, we have used it to promote tolerance to health and hygiene routines or health related routines that are typically not fun, right? Like who likes to brush their teeth? Nobody. Um, but it's particularly important to do, right, for, for health reasons. Um, or um, we've used it for people to tolerate wearing various uh, devices. So um, uh, we have um, uh, a woman that we support who uh, falls, has falls quite a lot and has actually um, hurt herself several times in falling and so her physician had outfitted her with a soft helmet to wear when she was mobile which gave her more independence where she could move around herself but she did not like wearing the helmet so we used a synchronous schedule to get her used to wearing the helmet and to to wear the helmet for longer and longer periods of time and then taught her the situations in which she needed to wear the helmet um, when she was wanting to walk somewhere or go somewhere so lots of behaviors that might be aversive or situations that might be difficult that um, people refuse a lot uh, to try to increase that tolerance um, uh, to those situations. It's it's worked wonders with a, with a lot of our con adult consumers as well as our the kids with autism with whom we work. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm glad that you shared that particular story because there are so many things that need to be done for safety reasons or for medical reasons that you know you need to find a treatment that allows you to really create a motivating environment and not have to force somebody through a procedure and maybe is looking more at that that compassion in the way that we deliver exactly care. and this seems like the perfect example for that. Is there been research that's gone kind of throughout, you know, the, the spectrum as far as going from young children, which the preschool studies all the way through adulthood? There have there, you know, this is such a new area of application, like synchronous schedules or other schedules of covariation have been talked about in the basic literature for a long time and actually in the child development literature, but it was typically used uh, as a paradigm to study other things. But using synchronous schedules in a way to change socially significant behavior is very new. Um, and so there hasn't been a ton of research on it. And but uh, within my lab, we've done we've used synchronous schedules with young kids um, uh, from age two up to about eight. Um, not only children diagnosed with autism, but uh, children that have no known diagnoses. Um, we've used it um, with various behaviors um, for kids, and then we've applied it in, with, in, with various behaviors with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a schedule that's applicable in a lot of situations across populations, but we just need more research with different populations, different behaviors, um, comparing synchronous schedules to some of our more common schedules to see under what situations might ones be a more applicable um, versus other situations. Um, so there, I think there's just a lot to do here um, 
research wise and you know trying things that that help with application and, and logically, logically though it, though, it makes, makes sense even based off of a lot of the literature that has come from this i mean this is derivative it's you know if you're pairing pleasurable events to something sure. that is ultimately challenging is that it makes the challenging thing less challenging i mean you exactly. get over that mental roadblock but with any of the interventions is that no matter what you're doing, there's not a one size fits all model. There are pitfalls and challenges that exist from every single thing is that you never know how somebody will respond. So what are some of the challenges that you've seen with practitioners as they're delivering a, a synchronous schedule that they need to be aware of um, just to be able to monitor and evaluate whether or not it's effective? Absolutely. So I'll tell you some of the things that we run into. <laughs> so one is um, obviously you need to find things that are reinforcers for an individual. So um, and because in this schedule, not all reinforcers can can be or should be delivered in a synchronous fashion. Um, sometimes it's been tricky trying to find reinforcers that can be delivered on an ongoing basis. So doing systematic preference assessments um, on these more ongoing um, uh, long access um, reinforcers is super, super important. Um, uh, the other thing is that um, not all behaviors are duration based and not all reinforcers can be delivered in a synchronous fashion. So if that's the case, then this isn't a schedule that you're going to want to use, right? You're going to want to go back to some of our other common schedules that that we've been programming for for a long time. Um, I think another thing uh, about reinforcer delivery under a synchronous schedule is thinking about what the behavior is you're wanting to change. So one, it needs to be a duration based behavior, but two, making sure that access to the reinforcer doesn't interfere with the occurrence of that behavior. So I'll give an example for me. Um, a lot of people like to work and listen to music or listen to podcasts. Um, for me, it interferes with my concentration and I'm not as, as good, um, particularly if I'm trying to read something and comprehend what I'm reading. And so making sure that the reinforcer delivery doesn't actually interfere with the occurrence of the behavior for a particular individual and also that it's not distracting to other people in the environment. So if the person is accessing music or a video, it might distract others in their environment. So you might need to do some tweaks there to make sure that that's not the case. Uh, and then the last thing I think that is, is, is really important is, so what happens after you implement the synchronous schedule and you see behavior change? So in some situations, you can just continue to implement the synchronous schedule. Like toothbrushing takes two minutes. You can implement a synchronous schedule for two minutes, right, with most of the individuals that we work with. It's not a long period of time, um, but what happens when one-to-one -one staffing in a situation is not feasible? or when the behavior has to happen for a longer duration. So going back to the woman that we worked with who needed to wear her helmet anytime she was mobile. Well, she might be mobile for 45 minutes and she doesn't have a one-to-one -one staffing ratio, right? So we need to think about how do we get that behavior to continue without the synchronous schedule. 
And so um, my lab's actually starting to work on some of this. What we saw with our some of our applications of synchronous schedules is that after we gave someone a long history with it, we could remove the schedule and they would continue to engage in the behavior. So maybe the synchronous schedule decreased the averseness of it of the situation. Now they've habituated to the situation or maybe engaging in the behavior came into contact with other reinforcers in their everyday world and now it's continuing. So we have seen with quite a few people after experience with it, we can remove it and that behavior continues. But for some people, it does not. They're reliant on that synchronous schedule, but it's not feasible to do a synchronous schedule for that individual or for that behavior. And so um, I think that is definitely something that we need more research on and we're actually looking at that. So right now we're looking at how can we maintain it if it doesn't maintain after we remove the schedule? So can we switch from a synchronous schedule to more of a non-contingent reinforcement schedule? So in synchronous, you have access as long as you're doing the behavior, it's paused and then it comes back. In NCR, you just have access, right? Regardless of whether you're doing the behavior or not. So if we change behavior under a synchronous schedule, can we maintain it under a non-contingent reinforcement schedule? or maybe we need to do synchronous sort of booster sessions at the start of the day or the start of the period of time in which the individual needs to engage in the behavior and then we can remove it. And so I think that right now is, is something that we're asking and trying to find answers to. Yeah, and I was actually writing down little notes to myself as you we were talking through the schedules as far as potential pitfalls. And I think you hit on some of the ones that immediately popped to my mind was, sure. you know, satiation of having to have this this continued reinforcement is eventually you're going to potentially get bored with that reinforcer or sure. things will change and it's like you have to have that variety and and I think right. that you mentioned just kind of making sure that you're doing enough sampling going through that process right um the fading part was the one that I think that is probably going to be a It'll be a challenge, but I think it's a good challenge because I yeah. think that it's one of those things that's going to differ depending on who your client and who you're working Absolutely. with. Um, so I could see all of those paths working in different ways for different, for different people or different contexts. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I, I'd love to hear a little bit more on, and you talked about it about you know the the group effect, but how do you see teachers potentially utilizing this for group contingencies or for classroom-based instruction where, you know, I'm not working just on changing the dynamic of a single behavior in a room. I'm, I'm really focused on how can I help to modify everything going on or even a family at the household of a bunch of children. Like, how do you, how do you work this into group concepts too? Yeah, we've done it a couple of times in our preschools. So um, one of my doctoral students, uh, Kai Kahneman, was a supervisor in one of our preschool classrooms. And uh, we started talking about how um, after playtime, which is programmed several times throughout the day, like free play, the kids aren't cleaning up, <laughs> right? You try all different kinds of play, the, the cleanup song and, you know, all of the things that it's a game and that kind of thing. And um, and so we're like, well, why don't we try a synchronous schedule within the context of a group contingency? So everyone needs to be cleaning up 
for the music to be happening. Um, if someone stops cleaning up, it gets paused, right? So we used it for cleanup behavior. We also used it in application for that appropriate mealtime behavior that I was talking about. So um, all of the kids um, at the um, uh, during lunchtime or snack time had to be their bottoms on the seats, keep their hands to themselves inside voice. As long as everybody was doing that, the music was on and they got to, we used sort of a group um, choice model for which song was played. So everybody chose which song prior to the meal time or prior to the cleanup time. And then um, we put all the choices in uh, a hat and then we pulled one out of a hat and that's the song that was played. And so, in the um, the toy cleanup, which we did as more of a, um, a systematic evaluation, it was effective for most kids. There were a couple of outliers across a couple of groups, which is common with group contingencies. <laughs> um, there's always somebody that keeps us on our toes. So we had to do some more individual um, training with those children. For one kid, we actually created a separate synchronous schedule contingency for them to, to see behavior change. But I do think it has a lot of application in uh, classroom environments where you're wanting everybody or the majority of people to be doing some ongoing behavior. Um, and, and are there, are there, I guess, um, secondary effects that are coming from this? So, and when I think of, you know, what you're describing with the synchronous schedule, I um, automatically in my head, I'm thinking, OK, so we have a few things that could come from this. One is, is that you might end up in fewer power struggles where, you know, you're not having to enter, engage in this conflict in order to change behavior. Instead, you might see self-monitoring. You might see self-correction. Um, are these byproducts that you saw through your research in the lab where you where you saw, you know, I saw, you know, children making the choice to change their behavior without the intervention of the adult, other than the removal of the synchronous reinforcement. Um, right. Was that was that what you what you all were witnessing, or did you still feel like I had to go in there and correct the behavior? No, I think that's a really good point about this schedule. Is that it provides the individual with more autonomy. So they determine whether the behavior occurs and when, and subsequently whether they access the reinforcer. So it's essentially a choice situation. If I do this, I'm getting this. If I don't do this, then that's not happening, right? Um, they're not forced to do anything. Now that doesn't say we don't remind them or prompt them, um, but we really haven't had to use like things like escape extinction or other procedures that might be aversive or exacerbate the occurrence of problem behavior or be unacceptable to some of the caregivers that we work with. And so um, I think that's what that's a really nice thing about this schedule is it's the individual drives the occurrence of the behavior and when they access the reinforcer. And um, and we did see some really interesting things. So in the group evaluations, we saw a lot of um, uh, side effects of that that have been talked about in the group contingencies research, right? Where you're having to work together as a group. And so when a kid would stop cleaning up, 
we had some kids that would go over and like prompt them or remind them, right? We're supposed to be cleaning up right now. The music's not on, that kind of thing. Um, uh, with um, some of our uh, adults with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, when we used the synchronous schedule to increase mask wearing during the pandemic, um, you could sort of see it becoming a light bulb moment to them. I mean, this this schedule is very powerful, right? It, the reinforcer delivery is immediate. It's um, because of the synchronicity, there's moment to moment changes that make it very clear what the expectation is. And you could see them take the mask on and then the music pauses and they're like, oh, wait, 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 I want that. <laughs> I got to get that mask back and then putting it on themselves. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think we did see quite a bit of that. And it, it seems as if with choice based intervention, patient centered uh, treatment is that you remove some of the ethical considerations that are being spoken about a lot right now where you're where you're forcing compliance and instead is that you're encouraging people to make the choice that that should be more advantageous to them. Right. Um, are there other ethical considerations that you had to look at when you were when you were trying to develop this line of research or were you solving for other ethical considerations that were already out there in the field? I think the latter really, I was like, oh, wow, this is something that we can do in those situations where in the past folks ha have had to use, you know, escape um, extinction or, or other types of procedures where they're sort of, I mean, not forcing, but, you know, encouraging strongly <laughs> the behavior to happen. Um, and uh, so I think that was sort of a, a big moment for us where we're like, oh, if this is effective, um, uh, this is great. Uh, some of the other things that I think it accounts for is that because reinforcer, um, it, the reinforcers delivered so immediately on a moment-to-moment -moment basis when the behavior is happening, there's no delay to reinforcement at all, right? There's no waiting until the reinforcers delivered. And so I think that makes it a really effective schedule. Um, and for some of our consumers, particularly our adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, delays to reinforcement evoke problem behavior. And so when we were trying to use other procedures, for example, to increase mask wearing that have been shown in the literature, we were getting lots and lots of problem behavior because they were having to engage in the behavior and then get the reinforcer later. And so this really allowed us to solve that, solve that problem. I think the only thing that people might wonder about is that inherent in this procedure, this schedule, is a response cost contingency, right? So if the behavior is not happening, the reinforcer gets paused, right? But ultimately, that's a lot better than having to potentially use something like escape extinction or, you know, physically prompting someone through um, tolerating a situation or engaging in a task. Um, uh, so I, I think that uh, I think a lot of ethical considerations have been uh, it, there are positive aspects of this schedule with respect to ethics. Yeah, and I think yeah. one of the things I look at often is on the ethical side, just because I'm both involved with clinical treatment and then also with business operations, is that if these are the same sort of treatment recommendations that you might have if you're applying it to other industry, to other walks of life, to other populations, um, 
if it seems like, you know, this is something that could be a very positive effect and not be punitive and help people to be able to monitor their own behavior, I'm almost thinking that in a clinic setting, if you are doing something that is very engaging and fun and you are and you have music going on while staff are working and all of a sudden that music goes off, all the staff are going to stop, recollect and kind of evaluate. Okay. What do I need to be doing right now? Oh, that's and a great point. Yeah. So it, it almost feels like, you know, if it's something that isn't punitive, it, it has that ability to go across different settings and different populations and be considered treatment or just behavior change. <laughs> it's like everything right. feels like you're removing some of those barriers for ethical considerations and the application is broad. Um but I think that training probably has to be there for people to use it successfully and to yeah. actually apply this treatment because misuse seems like it could be done inadvertently pretty easily. Um, where would you suggest that therapists or uh, ABA practitioners or uh, school counselors or teachers or parents can turn to to start learning how do I use this? What do I what do I need to do to make this effective for me? Sure. So um, unfortunately, in our a lot of our introduction introductory books, when you look in the sections on schedules of reinforcement, there's not a lot about on the schedule. Most that's been talked about is in the child development literature, and it was mainly used to determine preferences for different types of interactions by the mother or um, preferences for some adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities that uh, other systematic preference assessments were not effective for them for various reasons because of their disabilities. Um, I, and recently, um, we've published a couple of articles in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis um, that I think the third one is coming out now. And then um, one in behavioral interventions. And these are all applications of synchronous schedules for changing socially relevant behavior. And so increasing mask wearing during the pandemic, that was a big one for us. It was it was honestly a serendipitous moment. <laughs> um, you know, like everything kind of paused and our research was you know, not happening. Um, and then the company that we consult for who serves adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities came to us and say, can you help us with getting our consumers to wear masks um, because a lot of them had medical conditions and they live in congregate care environments where people are coming in and out of their home and it was dangerous, honestly, that they were refusing to wear a mask. Um, and so we used, uh, we via telehealth, we trained caregivers, their staff, to implement the sessions, slowly increase the amount of time that they were wearing the synchronous schedules, I mean, wearing the mask un under a synchronous schedule. And um, and it was successful for a lot of people without any additional procedures that we that we had had to use. And so that that study is published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. A follow up study um, is coming out where we taught very young children. So when the Centers for Disease Control reduced the age to two, we um, applied that with some of our really young kids in our child development center. Um, uh, so 
research is starting to, to come out. Um, a, a study just was published, I can't remember where the, the journal, but by um, colleagues at the University of North Texas that looked at application of um, synchronous schedules for increasing social interaction or appropriate social skills with children diagnosed with autism. So I think it's starting to, um, to, to people are starting to look at it, um, but mm -hmm. there just aren't a ton of resources right now because it's such a new area of application for behavior change. Absolutely, and I and I and I think it's part of the the clinician's responsibility as well. As you know, there there are CU events, there are things out there to be able to teach and learn the new concepts, and the clinician needs to start embedding them once they're out there and been pro proven. As you know, how do I work this into very specific tailored treatment plans for my client base, and how can I contribute on making it stronger over time by sharing my results and. And I think that's the applied science part is how do you Absolutely. take something that was learned through the labs that you all have done such a great job at and how do you make this part of mainstream practice? And I think there's a, a fallout there often. And Agreed. You mentioned even in the basic textbooks, we're still missing this particular component and it's hard to change all that, but it probably should be changed over time. Um, right. Where, where, I mean, if you were to kind of have your, your your utopic view of where this goes, and maybe some of the other questions and thoughts that come from this, do you have do you have some ideas out there of, you know, where should we be looking in the future to be able to kind of push this a little bit further and understand it better? Yeah. So I think I'm really excited about some of the questions we're asking about maintenance. I think that's a big one. Um, because, like I said, uh, if the synchronous schedule is necessary for maintenance of the behavior change, then sometimes that's not feasible. So we, we need to figure out um, how can we fade the schedule or, or maintain the behavior change without it being implemented um, uh, all the time. Uh, so I think that's a really big one. I think we just need more replication. So in different contexts with different behaviors and different populations. Uh, and then I think we need some compa more comparison studies. So one of my doctoral students, Sarah Diaz de Villegas, um, she's now Dr. Sarah Diaz de Villegas, she um, conducted a series of studies where she compared a synchronous schedule to, to an accumulated schedule of reinforcement. So uh, they accumulated how much time they got access at the end of the session, right? And her results showed that synchronous schedules were um, uh, more effective and more preferred for most people. And that makes sense, right? There's the delay with the accumulated schedule, but there isn't much other research comparing other schedules of reinforcement, right, um, to figure out how robust is the schedule and under what conditions is it better or more applicable and under what conditions are other schedules better or more applicable. So I think that's a big area. Um, in a recent study by um, my doctoral student, Katie McHugh, she, um, she applied synchronous schedules for those health-related behaviors. So hair care, um, wearing a pulse ox meter, um, uh, wearing a GPS tracker, so any behaviors that help keep the person safe or uh, toothbrushing. 
um, or health-related behaviors. And one of the things that she looked at was participant affect. So sort of looking at social validity or the ethics of this schedule, not only like what do the staff say about it or, you know, do people think there was a behavior change, but, um, uh, but what are some indices where we can see do the people that we're implementing it with like it, right? And so she individualized um, affect definitions for each of the participants. And then we collect data, collected data on positive and negative affect. And what we showed, which is what to me was one of the coolest outcomes, is that baseline compared to synchronous schedule implementation, positive affect was so much higher and negative affect was so much lower. And to me, that was like just sort of was a really cool outcome. Not only was the schedule effective, but people liked it. Mm -hmm. um, so I love I that. Really cool. uh, to yeah. be honest, that's one of those things I talk with our with our quality team about this all the time. Is that uh, as a field, we've gotten really focused on quality outcomes that are that are objective as far as did did you meet this standard of care? Did you increase this assessment result? Um, but I think that that should always be teamed up with what was the experience of the person going through the treatment, and, right. and you're gonna you're gonna have this weighted scale on this. Is that at times you you might have you might have to accept some of the variability between those two things, but the fact that your doctoral student was looking at that during a treatment that is it's hard. It's going through self help, going through healthcare that is uncomfortable. Probably the biggest variable to know if you're successful is, is this person tolerating it because they have to, in which case maybe the behavior won't be long term? Right. Or are they tolerating it and they're actually enjoying parts of the experience enough that they can make this part of their daily habit? Exactly. And I think that's so cool that that she was doing that. Um, well, Dr. Desher, I appreciate you coming on today. Um, where can people reach out to to get more of the information about the work that y'all are doing at the University of Kansas? Because there's so much coming out of your programs. There's so much information, and uh, even the research that you just uh, shared with me, one of them I found, but I did not find both of these articles out there. So I, I'd love to know where we can get more information about what you all are working on, because as a clinician myself, that's that's what should be guiding a lot of my practice. So sure. uh, please um, let us know kind of those those sites, those places, and then hopefully we can link them as well. Okay, so um, let's see. Uh, there, Diaz de Viegas, I believe it's 2020, is in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. And then McHugh et al. is uh, 2022, and that's also in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. And then um, there, the two others are um, about to be published. One's in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, and that's a second study by Diaz de Viegas. Um, and then um, one is about to be published in be Behavioral Interventions, and that's by Stacia Leslie. Perfect. And I will make sure that we have links to those, at least where to find them. Um, uh, so that all of our listeners have a chance to be able to learn from all the research that's going on out there. And and once again, thank you so much, Claudia, for joining us today. Thank you. I, this I feel has been like, a lot of fun. 
I, it's so much fun for me too. So I feel like I walk away educated every single time on topics that I need to be informed about. So it's a guilty okay. pleasure. So thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.